Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 14th, 2012, and my guest is Darren Asimoglu, the Killian Professor of Economics at MIT, and the author, along with James Robinson, of Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty. Darren, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks very much, Russ. It's great to, to be talking to you. Um, your book's an unbelievably ambitious and sweeping account of historical economic issues. Um, what are you trying to explain what are you trying to understand and illuminate with with this book? I think that one of the key questions that gets many people interested into social science is the same one that Adam Smith uh, sort of posed, you know, the wealth of nations, why some countries are poor, some countries are rich. And, you know, 250 years or so after Adam Smith wrote the, uh, you know, uh, the book that shaped economics, you know, the, the, the puzzle is deeper. You know, the, the gaps between rich and poor nations have widened, uh, even though we live in a very integrated world. And, uh, and we, haven't, we haven't developed a satisfactory and comprehensive answer to what factors are at the root of these differences and why there are such glaring gaps uh, in prosperity across nations. That's the question that we're trying to answer in this book. There are a number of attempts that have been made to explain, and of course, it's possible there there isn't one theory that explains everything, but we as human beings seem to be drawn to single idea theories. Talk about some of the alternative explanations that you reject in the book that have been prominent and used to explain uh, growth and poverty. Yeah, I see. I used to say that there, there are as many theories on this as the number of authors who wrote on it, and then I realized that actually some of them developed more than one theory. So uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, so there, there are a huge number of them, uh, but uh, – but there are a couple of uh, those that uh, that are really still very influential when you look at the writings of academics or pundits or journalists. Uh, you know, one of them uh, that perhaps is is, is is the least favorite among uh, uh, among among academics, but still sort of has a presence is the geography hypothesis that you know some places are rich because they have uh, uh, favorable climate or. Natural resources, good, yeah, good natural resources, uh, and so on. And and I think just the evidence doesn't support that. There's a very interesting thesis that you know, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel sort of uh, formulated, uh, uh, which is that uh, really the geog- the geographic factors determine where early civilizations blossomed, and then that uh, sort of in an almost deterministic way shaped which societies are more developed today. And we go in detail through why we sort of disagree with this thesis and why it's not really uh, capable of explaining the sort of patterns that we're, uh, we see around us today. But, but there, there, there are interesting uh, sort of variants of this. Uh, but the one that's, I think, more kind of popular among, uh, among, among journalists and even academics is a sort of a cultural hypothesis. Yep. You know, Max Weber was the person who sort of uh, developed the sort of the, the most famous example of this with the Protestant ethic and uh, contrasting Protestants and Catholics. That's not as popular perhaps today, but if you sort of ask people why China is doing so well, it's about Chinese culture. Why the Mexicans aren't doing so well or why the uh, sub-Saharan Africa is poor, it's all about you know national cultures or some cultural traits shared by uh, a variety of individuals. 
or it will be Muslim versus non-Muslim. And and again, you know, we try to explain why such explanations are are, are very limited. You know, China has uh, had the same Chinese culture, but it did extremely badly uh, for a few centuries. <laughs> They, they did extremely badly for a few centuries. It yes, was a, for a few centuries, yeah. uh, but even more recently, they did extremely badly 40 years ago when they had terrible incentives and under Mao and then suddenly started doing well when incentives changed. And all the while, the same people in Hong Kong were doing very well. So that sort of should tell you something. But the one that I think is most popular among uh, perhaps the listeners to this podcast uh, or, or more, more broadly among economists is I would, what we call in the book is the ignorance hypothesis. And we're sort of naturally drawn to that as academics because our business is to think of good policies and, uh, and, and, and judge which policies are bad. And so we think that that's really important. And many of us, not me, but many of us do advise governments. So we think that the advice that governments get is very important. So if only Greece listened to the right advice, if only Ireland did the right policy or the U.S. president had the right policy. So There's something to that. Small, sorry? There's something to that. There's something. something to that. There's something to that. Obviously, we as an economist know, uh, can analyze policy better, and there's good policy, the best bad policy. But what we try to uh, articulate in the book is that when you look at the policies and, uh, and, and, and choices that are most consequential for, uh, for, 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 develop, for economic development, uh, they don't get it wrong by mistake. They get it wrong by design. It's not that people don't know what's good or what's bad, but just like Mugabe choosing policies that destroy the economy with you know 100,000 percent inflation and 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 total chaotic uh, land grabs, they're not about uh, achieving prosperity for the nation. They're either clinging to power at any cost or enriching a specific group of people, including themselves, at the expense of the rest of society. So that's the sense in which we say they get it wrong not by mistake. Not by ignorance, but by design. Would you? How would you um, categorize the arguments where people say, and we're going to come to your explanation in a second. Uh, sure. But you know, people will say, "Well, we know what causes prosperity. It's it's the rule of law. It's private property. It's it's incentives with the prices, decentralized price system." And yet, often when those quote solutions are put in place. Where they had not been before, nations don't prosper. Uh, Eastern Europe being an ob- Russia being an obvious example. Now, two ec- possibilities are: one is that they didn't really implement the policy, and the second is something else was missing. Where do you come down on that debate? Actually, I think I think that uh, it would be useful to come to our explanation go for uh, it. a little bit uh, yeah, in, go ahead. in answering that question. I think we'll come to it in in your next question. But but our explanation, so sort of previewing it a little bit, is that you know. These things are really important. It's, you know, prosperity is created by incentives, and incentives are created by institutions. So private property is very important. Markets are very important. Uh, freedom to trade is very important. But our explanation really sort of departs perhaps from uh, the, 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 some of the versions of this story, is that these things don't exist in a vacuum. They need to be also supported by political institutions, and they need to be uh, effective, so what happens is that if you take a society that's dysfunctional, say, for example, Russia, and on top of it, you just foist a privatization scheme because that's going to take you closer to uh, prosperity, to, to, to market economy, you know, what you're doing is that you're taking an entire 
ill-distributed uh, system of political power, and then you're just giving people one more ability to grab assets. And what you get is not a market allocation where you know markets the assets go to the people with the best use, and uh, and people can sell and uh, can can buy and sell in whatever they way they want. But the people who are politically connected are able to grab these very useful state assets are very cheap, and you end up with with, with millions of oligarchs. So I think that's I think that that's a good parable for how our view sort of differs from, you know, just worry about markets being open and don't worry about anything else. No, you really need to worry about the political system and the social context in which those markets are situated. So I think that's undeniably true, and, and it reminds me of a podcast uh, we did with Diane Ravitch. Mm-hmm. We are talking about educational reform, and, and she's very critical of – attempts to introduce business models or incentives mm-hmm. into education, and I came to the realization that it's not dissimilar from these issues in in, um, in development where what appears to be a good solution, incentives, um, if it doesn't have the embedded other pieces that, that emerge naturally uh, with institutions, um, the incentives don't work for well, or worse, they, they, they end up being perverse. Um, right, exactly. I'm, think, I'm exactly. Thinking, about, thinking about Enron or California's attempt to create um, uh, an energy market, which was highly uh, – was, it really wasn't anything like a market except that it had prices. So it's like a market, but it didn't have all the other parts of a market right. that, that matter. Right. Yes, I mean, I think, I think the problem is, is twofold, and I think that's very important. You know, one is that it's not going to work. I mean, it's not going to work for exactly the same reasons as the, as the Russian one didn't work, because you introduce market, but uh, you, know, you introduce – supposedly prices, but at the end, you know, that's just a facade. Still in the background, political power is so unequally distributed, the, you know, uh, connections matter so much that people are going to make the allocations not on the basis of those prices, but, you know, who actually has the information about which, uh, which state assets are being sold for cheap and can shut out uh, other competitors and so on. The second thing is that you may even get it to work uh, momentarily. You know, you might be able to have a market economy uh, you know, foisted upon a system in which political power is extremely unequally distributed and is in the hands of a small, uh, small minority. But then, at some point, they're going to have the uh, incentives that they say, "Well, you know, why don't we start playing around with this market incentive so that we actually pre- uh, benefited ourselves? Why don't we start putting entry barriers so that people don't compete against us? Or why why don't we start uh, uh, grabbing some of the assets that people have now built?" through these market incentives. And once the realization of that uh, possibility comes, of course, the entire incentive system implied by the market, uh, uh, markets and property rights are going to collapse because uh, the political system is going to interfere. To give the listeners a little bit of a feel for the, of the analysis, talk about Nogales, Arizona, and uh, its Mexican counterpart, and how the it's only one data point, of course, but it illustrates why other explanations are not so satisfying and, and how your explanation is um, has a chance of being uh, a better explanation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very simple example, and, and, and you can find several others. It's, uh, it's really, I mean, uh, you know, uh, when you compare two societies at the two different ends of the world, you know, there are so many things that differ, and if, you, if somebody wants to say, no, it's really not the incentives, not, it's not really the institutions, <coughs> but it's the it's the culture or it's the geography, one can, you know, it's, it's very difficult to argue against it in a conclusive manner. But when you look at a, 
uh, a society that's ethnically, culturally, geographically very homogeneous, but you divide it through a border and you set different sets of uh, laws and incentives on one side uh, than another, then you have something that's uh, that's sort of uh, almost like a natural experiment that you can see how the two different parts that are otherwise similar are performing under different uh, institutions. And uh, South versus North Korea, uh, you know, uh, Nogales, Arizona versus Nogales, Sonora are, are, are examples that, you know, we can come up with. And you can see, you know, you cross the border and, uh, and, 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 you know, you suddenly enter into a very dilapidated uh, part, uh, much lower levels of income. People are not in school. They have low, low, low health. Buildings are uh, in worse situation. And, and the north of the border, it's entirely different because, you know, one part is in uh, part of the U.S. institutions and uh, benefits from all of those incentives and all of the businesses from the rest of the U.S. and the south benefits much less. And the counterpoint to that would be, uh, again, going back to this, the stupidity explanation, well, they have bad policies in Mexico. They have bad policies in North Korea. I really like your point that uh, – and we, we've touched on this in a podcast with Bruce Blaine and Mosquito as well mm-hmm. – um, it's not so much uh, that they don't know what the best policies are. They can't get there from here. They've got certain public choice and, yeah. and institutional barriers, it, which don't – to the outside or especially to the I, the uh, international economist who looks over it and says, oh, this is easy to fix. We'll just do X, Y, and Z. Again, in those contexts, say North Korea or Mexico, why don't better policies help those people? Why can't they get there from here? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that our story has, our theory has three parts. One part is about how institutions and through them the incentives are are central. And these comparisons, you know, Nogales versus Nogales, North versus South Korea, they're about showing that it's these institutional factors that are important. The second part of the theory is about why are these institutional differences there in the first place. And there it's it's where we argue it's not stupidity, it's not ignorance. It's really a uh, uh, conflict of interests that uh, or people who control power as politicians or as leaders or business leaders or, or whatever of the country uh, are, 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 are having their, 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 uh, their preferred policies imposed on society, even if it's not good for the society. And the third part is about how is it that those institutions change over time and why some societies have ended up with one set of institutions versus another. So, so in some sense, the uh, the Nogales comparison is all about showing it's about institutions, but to argue that it's uh, it's really not stupidity, but but it's uh, it's more structural factors. We need to look at other historical episodes. But I think the the case is very clear when you look at it. I mean, you know, I think it's very difficult to make the case that the reason why you know Liberia. Uh, did so badly under Charles Taylor, or you know, Zimbabwe the, the, is doing so badly under Mugabe, or the Democratic Republic of Congo under, or Zaire, uh, as it was then called, under Mobutu, has anything to do with these leaders not knowing what was good or not being able to somehow uh, get the right advice? It, it had everything to do with the fact that these were very rapacious leaders. They were just interested in their own. Uh, power and in their in, in enriching themselves, which they have all done with great aplomb, and they were able to do so, and and at the at the at the at the expense of the rest of society. Uh, 
you know, sure, the contrast when you look at Greece versus, I don't know, Austria is not as uh, as stark as when you compare, you know, Zimbabwe to Botswana, but it's still there. I mean, you know, it's hard to make the case that Greek leaders for the last 20 years were just uninformed about what was good for the economy uh, or sort of somehow unable to get the right advice, but they, you know, there was a lot of corruption. They didn't want to do the hard choices. They wanted to uh, benefit from the transfers coming from the EU while painting a rosy picture to the, to the population, and people, uh, they were able to get people to go along with it. So the obvious challenge to that, and you deal with it in the book, but I want to hear, let you give the answer. The obvious challenge to that is, well, if you're exploiting your people and you talk – the phrase you use is extractive. Mm-hmm. If you're extracting resources from the rest of the country for you and your friends, you'd really – you'd think you'd rather have a bigger pie to take uh, your share from than a smaller pie. So in, at one level, there's a puzzle as to why – these autocrats who only care about themselves and everyone – no one's naive about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't they just pass good economic policies and take more? And yeah, so, I think that's a great question. I think that's a natural question that you, economists ask. Go ahead. That economists have asked. And I think the, the wrong answer that some economists sort of developed uh, in the past is to say, well, institutions will gravitate towards being efficient because you can always separate maximizing the size of the pie from its distribution and nobody would – uh, nobody would uh, turn down uh, something that would uh, increase the size of the pie. And the, uh, the reason why that's not the right answer is because the distribution of resources, uh, the distribution of the, you know, uh, uh, of the pie, sharing of the pie is not separable from what its size is. And, and, and we kind of classify the reasons for that into two in the, in the book, and we call them economic losers and political losers. Economic losers is, a very, is actually an idea that's very familiar to economists, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and I think a lot of people will sympathize with it, which is that, you know, uh, many times, you know, the things that increase the size of the pie will come with the sort of humanitarian creative destruction. New people will come in with new ideas and will replace the rents of monopolists uh, or uh, the, 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 the earnings of uh, workers who have specific skills for the old technologies. And, uh, and, and we know that happens all the time. But we argue in the book, actually, that even the more important problem is what we call political losers. And by political losers, what we mean is that many times the changes that will make the pie bigger also change the distribution of political power. And the distribution of political power is actually even more primitive. Because if, after all, all you had to do was, you know, uh, keep your power and then some new technology comes, you can always try to use your political power to get some of the rents. But the real tragic thing, if you're a leader that's just interested in your own bottom line, is that, you know, the changes are also going to unseat you. And that's what the political losers are about. And, and what we try to sort of show through historical example is that many of the fundamental transformative technologies and many of the institutional changes that unleash economic growth throughout history have come uh, together with changes that uh, weaken the political power of rulers, and that's why they've been resisted by rulers. Yeah, I just want to mention to listeners, uh, there's no way in a one-hour conversation that we can do justice to the scope and breadth of this book. Uh, it's a little short of 500 pages, but the 
uh, historical richness of it is quite extraordinary. It, it spans time and place um, uh, in a rather uh, incredibly ambitious way and in very informative way. So some some would say too ambitious. Yeah, no, know. well, it's true. <laughs> Thanks, Russ. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the challenges of a theory of everything is that um, you know you're you're trying to make make everything fall mm-hmm. in there or at least a, a large number of things, and so uh, uh, I'm sure there are people who who quibble or complain a lot about any one particular example, but I think the v- success of the book. And the value of the book is the is the uh, is the volume of those of those examples and the richness with which you discuss them. Um, let me ask you a question along the way. The book is called "Why Nations Fail." Mm-hmm. I'm curious why you called it that instead of "Why Nations Succeed." Any particular yeah. answer there? Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a very very boring and bad <laughs> answer because "Why Nations Succeed" doesn't sound as good. Yeah, it's a little. It's succeed is a. It's, a, it's not as attractive uh, as cadence. No, why nations fail has this sort of sort of a single wordish yeah, sort of. Yeah, I hear you. But it's it's the right title is why some nations fail and others succeed. Yeah, I hear you. That, that's that's a mouthful. Or an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Somebody had taken that one. Yeah, of course <laughs> you can't copyright a title, but it's awkward, I think, to take a title from someone else like yeah, that's that. That's a little pretentious, I would say. You but, know? <laughs> but that's Adam. That's Adam Smith. That's the full title of Smith's right, book, right, The Wealth right. of Nations. You know, it's, it's just like somebody in macro writing today in a book called General Theory. Correct. It'll be a little pretentious. So, how do you see your work relating to Smith? Because there's certain overlaps. Obviously, oh very yeah, different. I mean, you know, he's he's a beacon. I mean, so. I think I think Smith, you know, to much more than anybody else, he had it right. He had it right. He had a lot of things right. But what he didn't do is that he sort of didn't go to the political level. He kind of really understood how incentives work. He really understood the role of economic institutions, what we call economic institutions. So essentially what we describe as inclusive economic institutions versus extractive economic institutions is more or less what... Smith describes. Of course, there has been changes, you know, since then. You know, we put much more emphasis on innovation because, you know, the the, you know, the power of innovation to transform well, there's the been economy. a lot more. Yeah, you know, we've seen much more of that. You know, things like equal access to education, so that people can be part of the modern technology. That doesn't feature as much in Smith because, again, the times were different. But there's remarkable parallels. But what Smith doesn't sort of engage so much with is you know, how is it that you make such economic, this type of economic institutions stick and emerge? And that's where our notions of inclusive and extractive political institutions come in. And that's where we sort of build on Smith and expand on it. I mean, not that he was unaware of it. I mean, he has a famous passage from another work, uh, or actually from a letter, I think, where he says, you know, you know, peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice as the sort of the three factors that are underlying it. And you can sort of recognize them as, you know, political factors at some level, but that's not where he goes. The other person on, on whom we build very heavily is Douglas North, you know, another you know, luminary, and he did put a lot of emphasis on both economic and political institutions, but we sort of go further, I think, than uh, Doug North and uh, sort of trying to understand why is it that some institutions emerge in some places and the interplay between economic and political institutions. Well, to be fair to, to North, uh, his work with Weingast and Wallace, and we we did fantastic a, stuff. Yeah, did a, po- a podcast with uh, Barry Weingast on this. Uh, he they emphasize open and closed orders where mm-hmm. people have access to political and economic power. It's not too dissimilar to your no, no. 
pluralism. Talk, give a little more, flesh out a little bit more that your view of, of government as a healthy institution because uh, I, I don't want readers to misunderstand your thesis. Obviously, um, you have a strong uh, – you believe that a strong government is crucial, but not too strong. So talk yeah, about. I, mean, I think you know you need to have a government that's strong enough to impose law and order and over its borders, uh, regulate things when it needs to regulate. Uh, but at the same time, the government needs to be a checked, and that's the same idea as goes to our founding fathers: checks and balances constraints on power, but also it needs to be responsive to a broad cross-section of society. Or in other words, what we call in the book pluralism, or a different way of putting it, is that there needs to be a broad political equality in society. So you won't get good political institutions uh, from which inclusive economic institutions will follow if political power is in the hands, is concentrated in the hands of a narrow group, be they the unions, be they the businessmen, be they landowners, be they a military minority like the Alawites in Syria, that's not going to be conducive. You need everybody to have political voice and that political competition to sort of rule out policies and choices that will enrich one group at the expense of the rest. Yeah. Uh, now let's take some specific examples, um, which uh, many of them are quite fascinating. And we, again, we can't get into all of them. But let's let's start with um, the Black Death. One of the things you're interested in. It's not many times I get to say in a podcast. Let's start with the Black Death. But you know, one of the things that you're interested in, of course, is the evolution of of institutions. It's not enough just to say, well, these guys had good institutions, these guys had bad. You talk a lot about critical junctures mm-hmm. and uh, how they shape and, 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 some, and some path dependency throughout history. Uh, what, why was the Black Death, which was a, a nasty uh, plague that swept through Europe, what did it do to the, to the institutions? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, just taking a step backwards, and I said, you know, we talk about the three pillars of our theory, you know, uh, the role of institutions, why – Bad institutions emerge and stick around, where these extractive institutions are not mistakes, but they're by design. And then the third is that how they, how they actually change. And I think the where, where we put sort of the emphasis on how they change is this, that, you know, the same sort of conflicts that are inherent and lead to extractive institutions sort of uh, emerging and persisting also mean that there will be people who will try to bring down those extractive institutions. There will be those who will try to bring them down so that they can build their own extractive institutions, or sometimes people will try to sort of uh, get themselves off from underneath those institutions, yeah. so reduce the extraction that these extractive institutions are doing. And, and, and many of these sort of conflictual periods sort of uh, really come to a head during periods of uh, what we call critical juncture, some sort of, uh, you know, if you want to think of it as a social, social and political disequilibrium period, when a shock hits and the existing balance is, is disrupted. And at those points, these uh, existing path of institutions will interact with these critical junctures, leading to a divergence, uh, because in some places the conflict will, be, will, will, will resolve in one way, and in some other places it will resolve in another way. So the Black Death is one of the examples that we start off things uh, to illustrate how this works, and you know, a huge plague that you know, really ravaged the population of you know, uh, Asia and Europe, uh, but, but, but mostly we focus on Europe, and 
and really shook the foundations of the existing feudal regime. So, but what happened when Black Death hit? You know, well, of course there was you know uh, millions of people, uh, you know, uh, up to perhaps uh, uh, a third or more than a third of the population of many parts of Europe uh, perished. But but it also changed the economic landscape in a major way. So while you uh, you, know, you know Europe was you know in a manorial uh, system based on servile labor at the time, and, and many of these people died, both in the countryside and in the cities, so it's through the usual sort of neoclassical channels, the demand for labor increased. There was much more land per worker, and there was much more uh, work in the, in the urban areas to do per worker as a result of the decline in population. Well, the, now, supply, create, the, su- the, su- the supply of labor decreased. The supply of labor too. just, 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 <laughs> just diminished uh, big time. So, so now this, this created two opposing forces. One of them is that the elites who were, you know, the masters of the servile labor, now they had an interest in extracting even more surplus out of the labor because, you know, the labor, the marginal product of labor was higher. You know, if there was a free labor, free labor market, wages would have increased because supply went down, as you just said. So now if wages are high, I can take even more of that. But against that, once labor became more scarce, its political power increased. There was more pull from urban areas. There was, you know, you could bargain uh, with your employer because the employer was really dependent on you because you were the only employee that he had. And other uh, other feudal lords or, 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 or cities were trying to attract as many laborers as possible. Now, which of these two opposing forces are going to uh, to become, to, to, are going to come out dominant. Well, that depended on the kind of the political path and the social economic path that these places had taken. And the contrast that we, we give is between Western Europe, places such as England, versus Eastern Europe. What happened in Western Europe is that the cities were strong enough and there were already, uh, protections for, for, for peasants uh, for a variety of reasons and, and because of some of the peasant uprisings, that, that, that actually the, the, the workers were able to sort of get the better hand and many of them actually gained their independence and, uh, or reductions in the, in the dues that they, were, they had to pay to their lords and so on. Whereas what happened in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Eastern Europe as a result of this is that actually this sort of was the prelude to the second serfdom where the uh, the obligations of the of, of the serfs became even more onerous. So that's sort of the sort of illustration of the critical juncture and how it plays out. But of course, its implications for the development of Europe were also major because that was the collapse of the feudal regime and uh, and the market economy started building as all of these labor obligation and bonded labor uh, started uh, leaving the scene in places like England and then France, and so on. Now you spend. Um I'm going to ask you a very, very complicated two-part question, but I think you can handle it. Uh, you answer one question that's always bothered me as a very amateur historian. There was a point in history, this is probably, I don't know, 1500s, shortly after the Black Death, where there were three dominant, very successful countries uh, in Europe, and high standards of living for at least a small part of the population, and it differed by country, of course, how much it was spread, but England, Spain, and uh, Holland, the Netherlands, were the were all very successful at this point, or at least had shown a lot of growth. They had done a lot mm-hmm. better than they had before that. Uh, 
we we go forward a few hundred years later, uh, and Deirdre McCloskey has a very interesting argument. It's also very ambitious that, that this was a cultural change. I'll let you throw in a critique of that if you feel like it. A certain uh, tolerance for commercial life became uh, apparent at that point or emerged, and that allowed some of these uh, these countries to succeed. It's particularly in, in the Netherlands and, and in England. And this became eventually the Industrial Revolution, and yet England dominates over that time period, and Spain uh, fades away as, a, as an international power, as, a national, as an economic force, and Holland becomes a much sleepier place. How do we explain that uh, very broad procession of history? And in particular, you can focus on why the Industrial Revolution had its home in England. I think that's a that's I'll give a you I'll give you question. I'll give you ninety seconds. No, you can have a little more time. Obviously, we could spend two hours just on that. But take a stab. Right. No. No. I'm going to give a sure, very short answer. I mean, I think that's again. What's well, in the book, know, folks? Uh, if you want to read, book. it's in the book. That's <laughs> a ninety-seven second answer. But yeah. uh, but I think the the answer is very instructive. I mean, you know, Spain is benefiting a lot from the new world trade. But look at who's benefiting from the new world trade. It's the crown. Actually, the crown is getting stronger in the, in. The, in Spain, it's the Parliament is uh, the Cortes is never called during the key period because the, the Crown doesn't need the Cortes. It's so powerful. Whereas in England, the the gains from uh, Atlantic trade because of the way that the uh, the, uh, the the English uh, monarchy had previously bargained with Parliament and passed laws uh, is not the monopoly of the Crown, and and so it enriches many of the groups that are most opposed to the Crown and they want their independence. And as a result, the, the same process that's leading to enrichment but political closing down in Spain is leading to uh, a, a series of institutional changes that you know bring constitutional monarchy and the beginning of what we call inclusive institutions in England. And it is those inclusive institutions that are sort of enshrined uh, in the in the aftermath of the glorious revolution of 1688, 1689, uh, that that really are directly leading to the changes in incentives and changes in market structure that underpin the industrial revolution that starts 50 years hence. I think it's very difficult to see how culture is such a driver here. You know. A lot of the cultural factors are, you know, developing slowly over time. Uh, in, in, in Europe, there's a lot of shared culture, actually, in, in, in Europe at that time. Uh, if you think of Enlightenment, for example, you know, Enlightenment doesn't start, start in England, doesn't start in Scotland. You know, the, the Dutch Enlightenment is, is perhaps the most uh, uh, path-breaking here, followed by the French. You know, those are all important factors, but uh, but it's not. Those are not the things that really make people throw themselves into finding innovations in spinning and weaving technologies and, and metallurgy and, and 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 engines that that really transformed the British the English economy. Well, I'll, I'll let Deirdre defend herself another time on the program, but I think the what's striking in your treatment of this is that. When you catalog some of the incredible innovations that take place in England, and many of them take, do take place in England, of course, you could be cherry-picking the data. I don't think you are. I think the, the dominant uh, – and I think there's a consensus on this, that the mm-hmm. dominant innovations did come from, from England. If I remember correctly, you argue that, well, they came from England because – they had an incentive to find them, and everybody exactly. else had they less had, of an and, incentive. And some of them actually came from people who emigrated to England from other places. You know, they did so because the same innovations would not have been rewarded. In fact, would have been punished in uh, 
in 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 other parts of the world. So uh, so you know we give the uh, we give the example of Pepin, for example, you know who also made uh, you know very important. Uh, Discoveries in, uh, uh, in you know very important advances in the steam engine, but uh, but you know his his innovations would not would not have been allowed, and he was actually try he was trying to emigrate to England because he thought that's the only place where I can actually make these things true. He died before he could do that. So to push the um, a mix of geography and culture just for a second. Uh, and let you respond to it. I, one of the things that's striking about your book, I remember uh, as a as a young person, I don't remember how old I was, but I read uh, The Conquest of Peru by Prescott, mm-hmm. which I think has, uh, has uncertain historical accuracy, but it's an utterly fascinating book. Mm-hmm. It may be a work of mostly fiction, but <laughs> right? But it's fascinating and, yeah. and it, about this clash between uh, the native people of, of Peru and the – the conquistadors coming from Spain, and what your book lays bare in a very brutal and, and important way is, and I was unaware of it, is is how badly uh, badly it doesn't doesn't do justice to it. How brutally uh, many of the co- colonizers treated the native people. Absolutely, uh, yeah. You give the example of the Dutch in um, mm-hmm. in the uh, East Indies, uh, not just. Subjugating the population, not just forced into patriarchy, but just murdering an enormous portion of them and leaving a few behind to to help uh, exploit the natural resources. In the case of the of the Spanish in in Latin America and South America, uh, just a brutal serfdom and slavery and and extractive, as you call it, uh, relationship. And then you contrast it with the British relationship in North America, and you're going to use that, of course, to understand. The evolution of those two parts of the world, North versus South America, turned out very differently decades and then centuries later. And you mentioned that well, when when the Britons, when the Brits got uh, the British got to Jamestown, uh, they they weren't able to subjugate the the native population, and they had to actually get along and eventually trade. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of exploitation and cruelty to the Native American population, ultimately. But in the early days, it was nothing like what was happening in Latin America. And similarly, in the case of the Black Death, the political responses that the crown in England, how they responded to these labor issues and were forced by competition and market forces to share wealth and share power didn't happen in Spain. Uh, It it does cross one's mind that maybe there's something unusual about Britain and the English, right? No, but I think that's a – no, I think think that's a very natural thing and a lot of people thought so. Actually, Adam Smith thought so. Adam Smith thought British colonialism was very different. Winston Churchill wrote – Volumes on the history of the English-speaking people. Well, you they know. would. I understand. They're biased. Yes, they <laughs> would. But 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 it's not true. It's not true. And and and, and that's what we try to sort of explain. In that, you know, what was you know, if you look at the history of the Jamestown colony, it's remarkable that the uh, the people who were you know the the the, the governors and uh, and the captains of the Virginia Company, there's. Their model of colonization was identical to that of uh, uh, Pizarro and Cortes, and, and and all of the conquistadors went to the to the east. They wanted to subjugate local populations and get uh, food and gold and silver from them. They couldn't do that because there were no uh, no such populations to subjugate. There was there was no gold, nothing nothing to grab. And once that didn't work, they said, "Okay, fine, we can't subjugate that population. Let's instead bring our own sort of." serfs from Europe, so bring people who are poor enough to sort of sell themselves into indentured servitude, 
and uh, and they'll be the lower class, and we'll be the upper class. You know, they call them under different names, like lead men. They call them in the, uh, in, the in 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 in, in Maryland. Uh, uh, and that was going to be a very two-class society, a very kind of textbook extractive institution. That didn't work either. So it wasn't because of the goodness of their heart, but because once these people came in, because the environment was so different that there was the open frontier, uh, you couldn't kind of coerce them to stay. They could go and uh, try to find their own plot of land that they, they made an about face and they said, okay, fine, now this doesn't work, we'll now give you economic incentives. And then economic incentives were insufficient because these were the same people who were first trying to subjugate you uh, at the bayonet's edge. And, uh, and they said, okay, fine, if you don't believe the economic incentives, we'll also give you political incentives, we'll also get, let you have your general assembly so that from now on you be the rulers of this land. And that's when the sort of the very different institutional path that later became the United States started. Yeah, I just was puzzled why uh, the British were unable to enslave uh, the native population. Did they not send enough people? Did they? Oh, have... the, there wasn't enough native population. Oh, you think so it, was, it was sparse? Is, so the parallel we draw there is that is that in the same way as the Spanish were not able to enslave the uh, uh, the native population. When they went to uh, to what is today now Buenos Aires, you know, when they first they went there, uh, you know, the, the people they uh, they encountered uh, were the Cheruas and the Quarandi, and these people were very uh, hunter gatherers, very sparsely settled, just like the uh, Native Indians, uh, uh, Native Americans in, in North America, and they couldn't, Spanish couldn't enslaved those either. But the Spanish had the, you know, they could, they could go out to other parts where there were hierarchical, more densely settled civilizations that they could enslave and subjugate. But the Americans didn't, the, the, the British didn't have that. And the British didn't have that precisely because they were late comers to the game of colonial, uh, colonialism. Right, they, got the, they got the worst, uh, they, they, they had chose the worst last. Yeah. You know, the Spaniards didn't want North America. Yeah, North I, America wasn't the, the prize colony. Yeah, well, that's because they didn't get to Texas and find all that that oil, right? <laughs> yeah, but but your basic point's obviously correct that the gold and silver of of Latin America, of South America, was an incredibly um, uh, seductive draw for for Spain. And I guess one way to tell me if this is accurate, one way to describe the difference between the British experience in North America and the Spanish experience in South America is that in North America, it was much easier for the Indians to run away. Whereas yeah. in South America, a lot of them were, had big, large population centers. Exactly. And That's exactly it. But again, it's not because of Spaniard versus British, and it's not because of South versus the North. The same thing happened exactly to the Spaniard, Spaniards, the conquistadors, when they tried to colonize the, the area around Buenos Aires and Uruguay. The Cheruas and the Quarandi, they ran away because they were sparsely settled, and they, were not, they did not have a very well-defined settled hierarchies like the Aztecs or the Incas. So shifting gears um, – Africa and South America are generally quite poor relative to to Europe and North America, but there are exceptions which make it interesting. Uh, yeah. In South America, you single out Chile, Chile and Argentina, and in Africa, you mentioned you single out Botswana. What went right for those those three? I wouldn't say Argentina. I single we single out in. Uh in, in the same well, I guess, way. I guess you uh, can't single out Argentina and Chile. I, I'm not sure you can single out two countries, but yeah. Right. Anyway. No, but, <laughs> but, but also I think Argentina, I, I, I think the story for Argentina is very different and it's a very, it's, 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 a, it's a tale of caution. 
uh, as opposed to the Botswana case. So let me say a few words about Botswana, and I'll come back to Argentina. I think Botswana is very, very interesting. I mean, look at Botswana was one of the poorest countries uh, at the time of uh, independence, you know, uh, no great resources uh, at the time, very few educated people, no roads, no infrastructure. You know, it would have been on the list of anybody, and it was on the list of everybody who didn't make a list, such a list, of countries that were going to go nowhere. And then, of course, it became the fastest-growing country in the world. Why? Well, one factor was that they discovered diamonds, but that's not a factor because, you know, they discovered usually... diamonds everywhere in Africa, and they yeah. did civil war and, 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 and all sorts of bad things. But the key thing when Botswana, again, is the only country in sub-Saharan Africa to have had this distinction, it has had an unblemished democratic record. You know, what happened is that it was one of the unique places in the entire colonial world where the colonial powers, in this case the British, did not, you know, did not interfere with existing institutions because they thought this was such a useless place. It was just a buffer zone. We just leave it as it is. There were some accidents, the contingent paths of history, that made them do so, uh, which we go into detail in the, in the book, but it's not worth going into through the podcast. But through a variety of channels, uh, through a variety of factors, you know, the pre-colonial institutions in Botswana survived. And then one more lucky thing, you know, in the pre-colonial institutions in many places were pretty awful. In Botswana, you know, as these things go, they weren't so bad. They were much more participatory, and uh, there was some nascent amount of pluralism in the Botswana. And it was that that, uh, you know, and they were, again, lucky perhaps because they had leaders that, you know, were not Mugabe and Mobutu, uh, that that you know that that those pre-colonial tribal institutions became the basis of its democracy. The democracy functioned; people participated, and and as a result, there weren't any incentives, or there weren't strong enough incentives to uh, adopt extractive institutions, or plunder the diamond wealth, or you know uh, introduce marketing boards to sort of draw you know drive the price of cattle, which was the main thing in, in Botswana, to zero, as they did in many other sub-Saharan African countries. And you see when you ha- what happens when you give good incentives to a place like that. It, it just grew. It just grew, 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 grew. Uh, so I think that's a very instructive case because it shows how what's, what makes you distinctive is this ensemble of economic and political institutions. It's not just free markets, but it's the fact that it's democracy work that's made it possible for orthodox policies, good macroeconomic policies, free markets, uh, and so on, to survive. Now, the Argentina path is very different. It's a bit much more like Russia today. Argentina became very rich, despite its extractive institutions, because of a resource pool. And it then came back to bite it. You know, you, if you become very rich because of a resource boom, but your institutions are deeply extractive, the moment that resource boom goes away, or even before, the conflict the conflict is there, and people are going to use the institutions for uh, for enriching themselves. And the history of 20th century in Argentina has been the history of coups and counter coups. And when it has been democratic, it's been the worst kind of democracy, as it is now, where policies have been extremely populist, and presidents who get elected with, uh, with you know, in elections have still used repression and and quite dodgy policies and means in order to control power. But let's let's use let's talk about the Soviet Union because <clears throat> you spend some time quite a bit of time on it. And I, I'm, I'd like to I'm going to disagree with you a little bit in how you interpret it, but give your explanation for. You, give, you talk about how sometimes extractive um, 
political institutions and economic institutions can uh, still grow. They're yeah, not so actually, we, 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 you know, let me let me bundle that together with China. So we we discuss them separately in the book, but it's uh, they are very related because uh, you know today people are you know uh, all enthusiastic about China, Chinese economic model, the authoritarian growth model, and so on and so forth. And our interpretation for China is exactly that it's a, it's a version of the Soviet Union. It's somewhat different. There are limits to the parallel, but the Soviet Union achieved extractive growth. It used the state power to channel resources from agriculture into industry, and it could do so in a rapid way because agriculture was so unproductive, and it had a lot of catch-up growth to do because, you know, technology was so far ahead of where, China, uh, where Soviet Union was. And by the forceful allocation of resources from agriculture to industry, it achieved remarkable growth for about 40 years. And we see China to be the same. It's a form of catch-up growth under extractive institutions. And, uh, and, and we, and the, the theory that Jim and I have suggests that unless China is able to fundamentally change its political institutions, as well as the, strengthen the reforms that it has already undertaken on its economic institutions, its growth, just like that of Russia or Soviet Russia, will be, will be short-lived. Yeah, the only, my issue with that is that I'm not really sure what kind of growth they actually had. Uh, an alternative explanation is that there was a measurement issue, and it's really twofold. One is that when they transferred those folks or when they were – in this case, they literally transferred. It wasn't mm-hmm. so much of a market process, a little bit more in China than it was in the Soviet Union. But when, when people became part of industry rather than agriculture, a lot of stuff that wasn't being measured as output now was measured. That's one issue. Second is I think it was mismeasured. Uh, I've, I read recently a phenomenally interesting book called Ivan's War. Uh, by Catherine Meridel, and she chronicles uh, the sort of daily life of the Soviet soldier in World War II. One of the more interesting – there's a lot of interesting things in the book, but Mm. one of them is that when the Soviet army reached places like Poland, um, uh, Poland was the most dramatic one. Soldiers couldn't believe the standard of living in Poland, and uh, some of the natives, I forget who who responded to this, said, hey, you should see Belgium. You think you think Poland's rich? When they got to Germany, <laughs> when they got to Germany, they also were shocked at how rich it was. But they they got comforted by the fact that well, of course, Germany was rich because they stole everything. Uh, they didn't. They couldn't imagine that Germany could be a productive economy, anything like what they saw, uh, because what they knew in their home life was so miserable. So I, I wonder how truly. I think there's some truth to that. I, I think there's some truth to that. Absolutely, that uh, Soviet GDP in 1985 and 1987 was probably. Uh, exaggerated because a lot of things were so low quality uh, and or un, unvalued. You know, they they had output, but they they attached right. a number to it that people didn't like. People they were, produced a lot of tanks. You yeah. know, we, we 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 put tanks in our GDP, so they can yeah. they can put tanks in their GDP. Fair enough. That's you know, their cars were crappy, very very crappy. That's for sure. But you know, it's not. It wasn't just pure measurement. Look, they were the first ones to send a dog into this into space. They were the first ones to send a man into space. Yeah. So true. they could do certain things by sheer force and coercion. Yeah. But you know, they couldn't produce a decent car. Yeah. And they couldn't produce the right number of uh, the right amount of pins. toilet paper either. Yeah, pins. Uh, you know, yeah. they couldn't produce the right size pins. <laughs> uh, what are the implications um, of your approach for foreign aid? Uh, you know, there's a big debate. We've had uh, Paul Collier on here, William Easterly. Obviously, there's a lot of debate in the literature and, and the policy space about whether aid works or not. Uh, 
based on your work, what's uh, what can we learn from your work about foreign aid? I think it's a, I mean, I think I think the most important thing is that it's a, a secondary debate. It's not the first thing we should be debating about the development. You know, foreign aid cannot be the solution. It, it's obviously it's not the source of ills. It's not the reason why places are less developed, and it cannot be the solution. First of all, it's just you know, how can you have solutions to deep institutional problems from the outside, from thousands of miles away by people sending money. But more importantly, you know, if you throw money into an unchanged institutional structure, nothing's going to change. I mean, I think we are seeing that in the context of Afghanistan and the U.S. You know, you know we have done, you know, the U.S. has done much more than just send foreign aid, yeah. but it has done it within a given institutional structure. And unless that institutional structure changes or unless you have a strategy for changing the institutional structure, which just doesn't work in general, unless there are some exceptional circumstances, it's not going to work. So the problems have to the problems start with the institutions. So therefore, the solutions have to come to grips with those institutions. And unfortunately, there are no silver bullet solutions for changing institutions. What do you think about this argument that aid actually is counterproductive because it enhances the political power of the extractive? I think there is some of that. I think there is some of that. If you look at the aid that Mobutu received, obviously counterproductive. On the other hand, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, some of that aid actually went to build schools. Uh, you know, I, mean, I, I don't think, know. I don't know if it helped institutions. I remember. No, it did not help institutions. <laughs> I mean, help, helped, excuse me. I don't know if it helped education. Is what I meant to say. Oh, you right. know, I, I remember a reporter once asked me if I was in favor of sending money abroad. Uh, to help build schools. I mean, who could be against that? And I said, well, we can't even figure out how to spend money in our own country to increase education. We're, we're good at spending money on education, on schools, yeah. but to actually make kids learn more, it seems to be a little bit trickier and yeah, to expect no, to right. do it from a so distance. There's a lot of wastage. So, I mean, respectable people that I trust, you know, when they calculate out of a dollar of foreign aid, how much of it does actually reach its destination is between 10 cents and 20 cents. But still, you know, I think some parts of the poor world are so poor, Haiti is so poor, that even if a lot of it gets wasted, 10 cents versus 20 cents is not so bad. But, you know, who am I closest to if I take Easterly versus Sachs? Of course, I'm much closer to Easterly. Yeah. But I think, you know, Bill would also say, you know, foreign aid is a source of ills. I would say the foreign aid has been a source of ills in some places, but in most places it's done a minimal amount of good because it's just transferred resources to places that are most in need. And you said there's but not, it's not part of the solution. So you said there's not much uh, we can do to um, shape institutions. Which I, I said there's not a silver bullet yeah. we, can, we can use, but there's obviously certain things that we can do to to be a positive force towards institutions. So you know, what are those? In, in Syria, you know, people, you know, the regime is killing people and. Uh, and trying to help the resistance in one way or another, you know, trying to reduce bloodshed, you know, those are obvious things that you can do. In Egypt, uh, you know, we are not, we have not been very successful, but, you know, the intention was actually good. You know, U.S. Uh, and NGOs try to build civil society organizations, to give support to the formation of political parties and uh, pro-democratic governments, and many of them ended up in jail. But those are the kinds of things that, we can do. Those are small things. They're not going to be game changers, but there's certainly, there is every reason for the U.S. and Europe to be, not to be disengaged with the developing world. But we don't have silver bullets. We cannot change domestic political economy, political equilibrium with a, with a kind of a switch of a button.
My guest today has been Darren Esamoglu. Darren, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, thanks very much, Russ. It's been great talking to you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.